A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 152 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legend, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Hurlman, and with me like the need to retell certain original trilogy era stories over and over and over and over again to increase sales to casual fans but hey at least it's a new continuity this time no retcon the eu guru himself the count of those two continuities mr nathan p butler hey everybody i think he just called me redundant (laughs) i see how it is although speaking of redundant i guess to some degree that sort of fits this uh the, the the atmosphere of this particular episode. Uh, We spent a lot of time in our Dark Horse discussion going over whether or not the last year or so, the last couple of years of Dark Horse were banner years for Star Wars or downsides. And now here we are taking our turn at the year in review, looking at specifically the comics. So those of you out there who have followed us for a while, who've listened to those episodes over the last couple of months, may wind up finding some of our opinions here being restated, but I think that there's still a level of importance here to be able to look at what this last year did for the saga in comics, because then we can break it clearly right there at January. Uh, Not necessarily, hey, what was this whole series like, but really, what parts of this series that showed up in 2014 were there, and what did they do? We saw five series end... We saw two original miniseries begin and end in quite a bit of reprints this time around. So perhaps a different context will make this uh, a bit of an episode that's not quite as redundant as it otherwise might be before we hit our games and videos and other stuff next week. Well, and it's unique in the aspect that if Legends does not continue, this will be the only year we have two continuities existing at the same time. So it's a little odd and we'll get more into that as we go but it definitely will make for some interesting conversation this is true here at star wars beyond the films we ask The tough questions, questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we take a look once again back over the previous year of Star Wars publishing. This episode, we will be focusing on the comics of 2014, with our next episode being, well, um, the other stuff. Now, consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. 
That's right. And of course, the context of all this is that it was in early 2014 when we found out that, oh, what everybody kind of knew was going to happen was officially going to happen, which is that Dark Horse was going to lose the Star Wars license and Disney was going to hand it off to Marvel, which they own very much like they own Lucasfilm. It makes sense they would move Star Wars comics to Marvel, which is essentially them returning home. I'm coming home. Marvel, of course, had the contract back in the late 70s, early to mid 80s. Then, of course, came the announcement in April about the change of continuity, that the expanded universe, or official continuity, was becoming Legends, the Legends continuity being labeled as such, and a new continuity is being built around the films, old and new, the Clone Wars and Rebels, that would be known as simply canon. We call it Disney canon or story group canon because the story group guides it like, in a sense, Lucas could have guided things before, but in many ways did not. Uh, so that we can differentiate here, of course. And that meant that Dark Horse was producing comics in January, knowing they were going to be losing the license, and then by February, knowing it wasn't going to be part of this new canon, until we finally get to August, where they finished up all their original stories, so that then from August up through December, they could put out the last of their reprinted and collected material before all that jumps to Marvel, who, oddly enough, are going to wind up almost immediately reprinting at least some of the Dark Horse materials under the Legends banner in some of their own collected editions, very much like Dark Horse did with the Marvel stuff in the A Long Time Ago Omnibus series and the things that preceded it. So it was an unusual year for Dark Horse in this case, during which they finished up, as I mentioned earlier, five original series. They wound up producing two short miniseries of four issues each, one of which was Legends, one of which is a combination of Legends and Story Group canon. And then they did go through and finish up most, if not all, of the different collected editions that they needed to wrap up for the year. Along with this, we'll also take a look at one other rather unusual source of Star Wars comics, that replaced the Clone Wars magazine as this year finally got going. So, it was an odd year all around, I think, for Dark Horse. And I wonder how much, knowing that they were losing the license, knowing that this was the last year, affected what they printed. I know it affected where they cut certain things off, but I wonder, for instance, how much of that affected the way that they ended Star Wars Volume 2, or Legacy Volume 2, or wrapping up Dawn of the Jedi, or their decision of what to publish going forward. I mean, presumably these things were already in the works in many cases before January ever came around. So how much of this was just, it's stuff they've already got in the pipeline, it just was wrapping up and they just didn't add anything new to it? And how much of it was, oh crap, we're losing the license, let's tailor things to really sort of end uh, with satisfactory conclusions all around. I myself have yet to hear anything that really confirms one way or another how much they were able to tailor this last year. Yeah. You know, there's so many things here that I want to jump on on what you were talking about. Uh, you know, one of the things, Marvel being 
right out the gate, coming straight out with reprints of Dark Horse comics. I, you know, that's a brilliant move. I think it's a great way for them to capitalize on, you know, the fans that are worried that Legends is going to disappear. Those, you know, fans that are so worried that, hey, as soon as 2015 comes, everything by Dark Horse is off the shelves and they're not selling it anymore. And what are we going to do? Granted, that's not the case. There will be stores that have already purchased those Dark Horse comics, those Legends comics that are on their shelves already. They can continue to sell them. They just cannot order new ones from Dark Horse to have them shipped to them. But they can through Marvel. So they can get those and get them coming. And so, so for Marvel, that, that makes sense. You're, you're able to capitalize on that Dark Horse last push, which honestly, at the, at the point of recording this, we're talking it's December 7th at this moment. You know, you still have 20 plus days that we could see like a last minute push from Dark Horse with some, uh, you know, e-comics, e-books, stuff of that nature, you know, last minute push in that regard you know hey we got a big sale of this bundle here and a hubble bumble here whatever it's called uh you know doing something along those regards so i think it's smart move on marvels to reprint the stuff plus it also helps the fans that are worried that it's going to dry up know hey there's still that material out there it's not going away even though it may not be continuing uh you know the other thing you'd mentioned was dark horse knowing the end was coming and i i don't know i i feel like they didn't realize that it was coming or they they were committed to what was already in the works so they were completely hosed into mediocre stories that were already loaded in the barrel i mean in a lot of ways if this was the eu coming to a satisfactory conclusion it was as satisfactory as invasion was and i'm sorry randy stradley that was not at all satisfactory conclusion so i i, I really think that they were completely caught flat-footed in all aspects i mean the, the planning was so far out that they even knowing this is it, they were too committed to what they had. Uh, I really, truly think in a lot of ways as a going out and a handing off, the ball was dropped. All right, well, let's start out with uh, one of the miniseries that ended this year, and that was Darth Vader and the Cry of Shadows. We had had the first issue back in the previous year, and in 2014, we got issues two through five, which, of course, is the bulk of the story. And then we got its collected edition in that hardcover. Um, to me, and we've talked about this in its own episode, I found that this was a decent enough story, not great, kind of blah, certainly not there with Hayden Blackman's entries into the Darth Vader series of miniseries, but certainly better than Tim Seidel's previous outing, Darth Vader and the Lack of Plot, a.k.a. Darth Vader and the Ninth Assassin. I think the things that stand out to me here are that uh, these issues, two through five, got away from the chronological mess that was made in the first issue, where they couldn't quite figure out where to place it, and what was in the story contradicted what was on that sort of uh, interior credits page that we talked about at the time. And I still find myself scratching my head that of all series that they could have done, that it was the Darth Vader series, starting with Darth Vader and the Lost Command, all the way up through this one, that these were the ones that, when collected, got hardcover additions. Um, I never really felt like, except maybe Ghost Prison, that any of these truly justified the hardcover collection as opposed to just a standard trade paperback. Certainly not this one or the previous one, the two by Seidel. It just it was an odd choice, I think. So this one ends, and to me, ended the Darth Vader series on a down note. It was better than Ninth Assassin, but both of the latter two series paled in comparison to the first two. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I, I hate to, to have this pattern coming, but 
in a lot of ways. It's that last hurrah. And it, it was just one of those where it ends and you're kind of like, oh, really? Like, had it been the ghost prison, I think you would have felt like the Darth Vader series was a success. But because you had Darth Vader and the lack of plot, I mean, the ninth assassin, and then Cry of Shadows to wrap it up, you go into such a deep hole of of crap and mediocrity that that getting out of it, Cry of Shadows had a hard time. I mean, it, it too was a mediocre story. Uh, it just it did not hold the attention long enough and it was just jumbled enough that that it wasn't a satisfactory close as well. And I think, you know, like you said, for the Darth Vader series as a whole, that's just not the way you wanted to wrap it up. Uh, you know, the ending of that, it, it, it felt like, as we mentioned in the episode itself, it felt like there was something missing, like there was a bit of narrative not there. Uh, to really kind of drive the impact or, or explain really what it was you read. I mean, there was a little bit more confusion going on into the end of that. Whereas when I think of, you know, the ghost prison, that was a straight up front story. And it when it came to its end, it was a great ending. It had a great twist. I mean, everything about the way it came about was really good. This one, everything about the way it came about felt off. Uh, it wasn't terrible. It wasn't Darth Vader and the Ninth Assassin terrible, which, you know, I believe that story was terrible, but not everyone does. So, you know, you may have enjoyed this one. It was fun in the aspect of the clone and having some bits about the clone. But again, there was not enough narrative to really flesh it out. That brings us to one of the ongoing series that ended this year. For a while there, we had seen the growth of the early, early, early Jedi Order. In fact, before it was the Jedi, and it was the Jedi, which was Dawn of the Jedi. The story leading up to the Force War, the whole concept of that series, was that there had been these early Jedi on Tython, and there was this huge Force War between followers of the light and dark and whatnot, which would eventually give us the Jedi Order, the leaving of the Tython system, and the backstory that's alluded to I mean, really early on in stuff like the essential chronologies, but also in things in a more direct way, like the Old Republic MMO. This was the year we got the last three issues of the last series, or mini-series within Dawn of the Jedi, entitled Force War. And of course, we got the trade paperback that rounded out that series. Um, I gotta say, when we covered this in detail, I remember one cool thing about Dawn of the Jedi Force War... Uh, being the fact that they jumped it ahead by a year. We saw what should have been sort of the beginning of the Force War back in the previous arc, and instead of just going straight into it and having it be multiple arcs to take up that entire war, which would have been awesome if Dark Horse kept the license and the Legends continuity kept growing through the comics, um, instead, they jumped ahead a year into the midst of the war, and we saw... The conclusion of it, though you got the sense that other things could still be coming, certain things we expected in the background still hadn't happened yet. Um, this is also the arc in which, because I complained and, well, and not really complained, I brought concerns uh, to Jan Dersima and Leland Chi. They were finally able to get the dates correct inside the comics for Dawn of the Jedi. Unfortunately, that means that only about the last three issues have the correct dates in them, and every other previous issue, the dates were all thrown off like crazy, uh, thanks uh, to how it matches up with the novel that came out, uh, Into the Void. But I found it, at the time, kind of an interesting choice to jump it ahead, and that it worked out fine because it was the end of the series. That seems to have been a decision that they made 
before they knew that Dark Horse was going to lose the license. So to me, Dawn of the Jedi ended ending with Force War, it ended on a strong note. I don't think the series ever made it to the heights of the last big ostrander Dursima team-up, which was Legacy. But it never really had that opportunity either, just because of the sheer amount uh, of issues needed to really get that kind of depth going in the fact that they really only had, what, three story arcs, and then it was pretty much done. And so to me, Dawn of the Jedi is probably alone amongst the ongoing series that ended in 2014 as ending strong, leaving us wanting more, uh, and being what one could say is a satisfactory conclusion. Yeah, I, I will 100% agree with what you said. Kind of kind of angry, man. You stole my words. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you nailed it. I mean, they'd already jumped forward last year, uh, you know, with that story. So that, that does tell you that they had planned to do that jump forward already, which leads me to also believe that before the death of the license came, they were probably going to have at least one more arc to follow, if not more, which like you said, that that John Ostrander and Jan Derisma dream team action of how their stories flesh out. I had that feeling that more was coming. But yeah, this one definitely left me in a good place. Uh, you know, it had enough of the story and enough of a conclusion that I didn't feel like I'd missed much. I did wish for more. But again, the way that they delivered it and knowing beforehand that they were going to do that jump ahead, you know, it, it worked. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what saved this series. I think had they not already planned to do that jump ahead, I think it would have felt a lot more forced than what it did. I mean, I think for most people that thought it was forced, it was more that jump and they, they didn't want to miss the action. Uh, you know, but but because it was planned, they were able to tell the story in a way that worked around that. So so I liked it the way that that worked. Um you know, it was one of those stories that it was an era that was exciting. Uh, it was new. It felt like a reboot without being a reboot because it was within Legends, but it was dealing with concepts and and the Jedi and the Sith in terms and and philosophies that were new to us. You know, a new way to see the Sith. Hey, the Sith aren't bad. These guys are just a species. And at this point, you know, they're Sith Jedi. And and so it was really cool and refreshing to see all that stuff. Then to see the Rakata show up and to see how that started to tie into things. I think that was the part that really kind of bummed me the most was I want to know more about that moving forward. And and I really got attached to the characters. So, you know, they, they really had a lot of wins in that regard. The, the worst thing about that was the fact that Legends has come to a close. Uh, you know, we will be having an episode in 2015 talking about the stories and the objects and things like that of, of Legends that could create potential for new stories and this is obviously one that's going to go into that episode because there are so many other aspects that they could have continued to tell plots and stuff you know i mean even the stuff that tied into the book uh you know i mean there were so many aspects like that i mean they were doing a really good job of doing the comic and the book and tying them together and i really had that feeling like you know this era was going to be the next kotor we we're really going to start fleshing it out and then all of a sudden seven eight nine hey we're selling and everything got shifted so you know, there's there's one hand that that's like, you know, as the new canon grabs and brings things in, there's a part of me that's like, you know, will stories like this come in? Will we get readaptations of some stories like this that give us things that were similar to what it was before, but now make it official canon and bring the story elements in set in a story that is a canonical story? Uh, you know, I mean, I'd be kind of happy for that because there is a legitimate 
question or, or a, a want from some legend fans that would love the older era stuff that does not conflict with the forward stuff to be brought over into canon. There's a part of me that's kind of like, you know, I like the clean divide, but at the same time, I understand that there are a lot of stories that could easily come across if they so chose to use them. And so I would rather they they retell the stories as quote unquote canon versus saying, well, this one story from Legends is a canon story or, you know, these elements of that story are now canon. You know, I don't know. This is one of those stories, though, that I would love to see them come back to this era in canon or even the KOTOR era and flesh out that end. Because right now in canon, we really only have the prequel trilogy, the original trilogy, Rebels in between those and coming up with the sequel trilogy. So, I mean, I would love to get some of those far-flung ends of the eras fleshed out because, honestly, those were a lot of fun in Legends to read. They didn't conflict with much stuff. There was some concern about, well, you might be stamping on continuity here or there, but for the most part, they were a lot of continuity-free stories. Speaking of ongoing series that had a tie back into the last uh, Ostrander-Dursima team-up, which was Legacy Volume 1... We had this year the ending of Legacy Volume 2. Now, granted, not by the same creative team. Now, this was a new series by Karina Bechko and Gabriel Hardman, a husband and wife team. And the idea was to follow a descendant of the Solos rather than a descendant of the Skywalker line. This year, we got really almost half the series. We got issues 11 through 18 which gave us uh, Wanted, Anya Solo, and Empire of One, essentially the bulk of the last two arcs of this series. And then this was the year that saw trade paperback reprintings of all but the first arc that had already been collected. So Outcasts of the Broken Ring all the way up through Empire of One. And the Empire of One trade paperback, that's the one that includes that updated version that you can only find in there of basically the Legacy Number Zero or Number zero and a half that includes all the material from the last time it was printed for Legacy Volume 1, plus just a handful of pages of extra material based on Legacy Volume 2. Uh, Mark, I stole your words last time when talking about Dawn of the Jedi, so you take this one first. <laughs> okay, well, with this one, you know, I was a little skeptical with the series as a whole going forward. I mean, you know, the whole aspect of it being a solo descendant, I was excited wow. for uh, the potential was great right out the get-go. And then when the series started, there were a lot of things that weren't answered that I wanted answered, you know, like how the connection to her being a solo, how was she, you know, a solo at all when the last solo in the line was Alana Solo, who for all intents and purposes should have lost the solo name once she married. So it was, you know, there was that kind of angle of how it worked out plus you had in legacy volume one Cade he knew all about you know the fells and them being related and that didn't seem like much I mean like the whole family background with Anya was dropped and I wanted more of that when it first started they weren't really giving it so I was kind of like mm, I don't know about this series but the plots and the way it tied in with everything from legacy one uh and the Mon Calmari plot and the way that the Mon Calmari planet was a big you know place the uh setting for a lot of this story i really enjoyed that 
I was really always upset, though, about the Mandalorian plot being dropped from Legacy Volume 1 with Hondo Carr. I always thought when he went off to kind of go after the Mandalorian and become the new Mandalore, he wanted to take out the bad Mandalore. I always kind of thought that that was, you know, because that wasn't wrapped up in Legacy War, that that was going to be a part of or a side plot in whatever was going on with this. And, and it wasn't. That was completely left off. So when we got to the end, that was the one thing about this one that really left me kind of feeling like we didn't quite get that satisfactory conclusion. But in a lot of ways, I felt that Legacy Volume 2 had the best wrap-up for the series. Granted, not the last arc per se, but for its line going out... The last cover, the way it wrapped up, I like the closure I got with it. Granted, for a series, when we deal with that as a series, it did come to a quick resolution, almost too quick. But as a series whole, I, I liked how when it ended, I felt like, you know, I could I could walk away. You know, it had a, a better conclusion than Crucible did for Legends. And in that regard, I was very happy with it. Uh, you know, yeah, the story itself and the way it worked as an arc, it did have a rushed conclusion. But, you know, I, I, I wonder almost if once Dark Horse found out they were losing the license, if they shouldn't have just thought, you know, maybe we should extend some of these out. But then you run that risk of adding filler to a story that just drags the story off in directions that you didn't mean to and distracts you from what you originally intended. So, I mean... It's it's a two-way sword there. I mean, yeah, on one hand, they could have probably given us more and really fleshed it out more, but I was kind of happy with what we got. Yeah, this one's an odd one in that the series never really had a chance to get to where it could have been. It had not reached the level of Dawn of the Jedi. It had certainly not reached the level of its predecessor, Legacy Volume 1. Uh, the characters, to me, never really got that level of depth, though they were heading in the right direction. And the artwork really hampered the storytelling so much that it made it sometimes a slog to read through the issues. Even if stories were strong, the artwork was pretty awful at times relative to what we would have expected from something in a legacy series. Um, even the filler issues back in the uh, original Volume 1 series. To see it all end, I like the fact that we finally got an actual ending. But you're right, it really felt rushed. We had finally got really an origin story to a degree of Anya. Still don't know how exactly she's related, but we saw the origin story in a sense. Uh, her back in the prison camp and everything. We finally got an origin story for Darth Red. So we knew why the heck he was doing what he was doing. But then at the end, we got a cool knockdown drag out battle and it brought all the characters back together and set them off in new directions and really sort of created an ending for them that shows that, you know, their story goes on, but this particular era of their lives is over, which makes sense. It's a good way to end a story, but was really rushed in, and it was just, hey, Darth Red's been doing this thing. Let's have every single Sith, pretty much, that is out there left in the galaxy just decide to come here at this particular time and essentially lead themselves to their own annihilation. There has been an awakening. Have you felt it? It was a very pat, quick, kind of cheat of an ending to this era that probably could have stood to go on a little while longer. Though, I would disagree about the idea that they should have possibly 
added more bulk to this and let the series continue on, given that they had a hard ending point of having to be done publishing Star Wars comics by the end of 2014, I think it was a good idea that even though they rushed it, they did wrap it all up. Because otherwise, if they had tried to insert more issues, the further you go beyond August, the less likely it is you're going to have a chance to put out a trade paperback of this. And I think one of the goals Dark Horse had, and I think it's a good idea, is that they wanted to make sure everything was wrapped up with just enough time to get out trade paperbacks of virtually everything they wanted to put out there so that most of their comic lines could be had as individual issues, digital issues, or trade paperbacks to provide fans with that level of choice in their collections. Because otherwise, we'd be talking right now about how much it sucks that all these series ended in 2014, but we're never going to get trade paperbacks of them, so those who collect trade paperbacks are never going to get to have a full set like that. I, I agree, it is a, a mm -hmm. two-edged sword. They were damned if they did, damned if they didn't, and I think they made the best choice of the two possible choices here. Well, and it goes into what we were saying at the end of last week's episode was how there was that yin and yang to the comics and the novels. It was like, you know, through April through uh, uh, August, you know, no novels, you know, I mean, that was that, that gap as the new dawn was about to kick off. But there were plenty of comics wrapping up. And so, I mean, there was that kind of baton being passed back and forth as the year went on. So it was it was weird as a longtime EU fan. You know, and having things back before the official site shut down and all that stuff. I mean, there used to be like, it felt like there was a good staggering. It was like every other month there was a book and there were comics constantly throughout the year. I mean, granted, uh, Dark Times would do its hiatus and stuff and really throw a wrench in that and stuff around October and stuff like that. And then you wouldn't see it come back until almost March the next year. But this year definitely seemed like a, a yin and a yang, like a, a coming of tides, a high tide and a low tide where, you know, the comics was one and the novels was the other. That brings us to another volume two that ended this year. That was Star Wars volume two. Actually, the third time there'd been just a series called Star Wars, albeit the first one being from Marvel. So essentially volume two from Dark Horse in this case, the Brian Woods series with Carlos DeAnda doing the artwork much of the time, but not all the time, unfortunately. Uh, in this case, this year, we got issues 13 to 20, which gave us the storylines Five Days of Sith, Rebel Girl, or excuse me, I have to say that the way that, you know, uh, it sounds, Rebel Girl, and A Shattered Hope. Then, of course, we got the trade paperbacks of the series, starting with the second one from the Ruins of Alderaan, going all the way through to the end of the series. Uh, so Five Days of Sith, Rebel Girl, A Shattered Hope. Again, Mark, you take it. Well, with this one, you know, I have to admit, in so many aspects, I really truly felt this should have been the first new canon comic. I mean, Bridger, anyone? <laughs> I mean, how cool would that have been had that whole Mon Mothma and my nephew being Bridger angle? I mean, that, that would have raised so much potential. If that would have been in canon, plus all the little retcons that we may or, or may not have had to stick onto Legends. I mean, at this point, it's like so late in the game, it's really hard to even say, like, let's retcon that and make it canon in, in the Legends continuity. Because it's like, you know, is Legends completely done? In that case, hey, I'm not even going to count that anymore. I mean, it's, it's so hard not to go into a personal canon in that regard. But. This story, I truly felt it could have been a much better story had it been the new canon. Uh, you know, I, I did like the art. 
Uh, you know, there was that aspect that the art really worked, but I hated some of the characterizations. And surprisingly, Leia's was not one that I hated. It was more Luke. I really didn't like what they did with Luke. And yeah, I get it. You know, yeah, they're taking certain angles of Luke, but sometimes I feel like when they try to go and capture Luke from the films, that they they focus too much on like a five minute period of Luke in one film, and then you're you're dealing with a five or six issue arc where that's all you're getting is that moment of of attitude that he expressed during the film, and that's Luke. That is Luke 100% of the time in the comic because just, that's just the Luke that the, the writer of the comic liked, you know? And I didn't like that regard of it. I mean, Luke seemed very, uh, oh man, I mean, family-friendly words are difficult, but whiny is, is, is barely even touching the surface. Uh, <laughs> egotistical maybe at times, but th- there were just so many off aspects. And Han's character too felt, shoehorned in at times like like half the story could have done without han i i I felt like that could have been the case and we would have never worried about it uh leia's character though was one of those that i get excited in the aspect of the new canon stuff you know where are we going to go with her and that i think leia's character is the main reason why i wished this would have been set in new canon because it's like they were doing things that while she had done in other comics even early marvel comics they were really pushing her to top tier of those new things you know you saw her as not just a pilot but a starfighter pilot not just a starfighter pilot but pretty damn good one which is okay i can get that but having her be the leader of a squadron and all this stuff i i just i felt like she was so out of her element in certain ways and it also conflicted with what i felt wedge should be doing at this time so there were so many angles in that regard of the way the characters were interacting and the way they were being portrayed that it didn't quite work. And there were so many times that while the art would really rock in so many levels, when it came to those main characters, I felt they really missed the bark. I mean, Leia was okay. I mean, heck Leia was pretty sexy most of the time, but Luke looked like Taisho Klishu quite often. And Han was just morphing all over the place. And even wedge had times where it was like, okay, what is going on with these people? C-3PO looked skeletal at a lot of times and R2 almost looked steampunk. From time to time, Bridger, you couldn't tell whether his, his uniform was red or black. You didn't know what was going on there. So there was quite a few things there. And then there was the aspects of continuity that were bouncing all over the place because this was set in Legends. And we got comments in Insiders talking about, you know, that they were practically turning a blind eye to continuity and saying practically to hell with it. There were so many warning signs about the series going forward that it's staying in Legends left me. You know, as you've heard on the episodes, I'm not quite a fan. I I, I don't hate it, but I don't love it. Uh, you know, it, it was run of the mill, but it's a lower till run of the mill for me because I like so many other stories set in that time frame. And it didn't really do that much. I mean, it did great wonders for Bridger's character. It was a fun story for Bridger's character in a lot of ways. Uh, when he showed up and when he finally even got a name. I mean, there were so many aspects and so many angles that it was just missing the ball. Plus, you had all these variant covers and, and all the hoopla that came with it. I mean, they were blowing so much smoke, so many different directions, and so many people were gobbling it up that when we actually got the series, it did not deliver. Yes, it definitely uh, warmed my intestines because of all the smoke they were blowing up my, well, orifice back there. Um, 
Definitely not a series that was even remotely worth the hype that they put into it. Carlos Danda's artwork was excellent. Brian Wood's story, can, had it been the beginning of story group canon, might have actually worked. Instead, it felt like a series that basically said, screw you to previous continuity. It was flipping the bird at people who gave a crap about continuity. I remember back to something Randy Stradley said years ago, which is one of the times that he and I kind of got into it back and forth on the message boards and whatnot that wound up playing into some stuff in uh, Chrono Radio days. Ironically, it was the passion related to that that was part of what wound up with Jeremy Barlow saying, hey, this guy actually cares. That was one of the things that led to him asking me to write for Tales back then. Um, but he had said essentially that in trying to craft a good Star Wars story, essentially one should not be beholden to previous continuity. That essentially continuity should be able to be tossed out the window or massaged, so to speak, if it meant being able to tell a good story, and then they could fix it or retcon it at some other point. That seemed to be something he said back then that he stuck with, but which, because of the fan outcry to it, um, it wasn't something that was his M.O. all the time. It wasn't, well, we're just going to tell a good story, screw continuity. It was, yes, but if it ever comes down to that difficult choice, they'll try to err on the side of telling a good story and expecting a retcon rather than saying, hey, we're going to toss out this good idea because it just doesn't fit, there's no way to work it, etc., etc. Um, so we got basically Dark Horse Comics building a lot of the foundation of Star Wars continuity for a while. And then came this series that took the worst-case scenario, just about, it seems, of those old, you know, 2002, 2003, 2004-ish era comments from Randy Stradley and put them into practice, which I'm not sure was what they meant to do. But instead, it was a mess. The number of times I was emailing back and forth with Leland Chi asking, what the hell is going on, essentially, um, was ridiculous. And he really couldn't answer until the series was over. And of course, by that time, with the series being over, Disney was in power and essentially saying, no, unless you go through the PR department, there can't be that line of direct communication when it comes to continuity stuff with members of the story group anymore. So we never really got a lot of answers to how this is meant to fit in, even though it seemed like it was designed not to, and they never really massaged it later to try to make it fit. I will say, though, of the stories that we get here, uh, it's an interesting and somewhat eclectic mix. The first couple of arcs gave us that, uh-oh, there's a spy in the rebel ranks thing that never ever really felt like it was dealt with. It was just sort of dropped. You know, oh, look, Kel Bircher, and you kept saying Bridger, and I wasn't going to stop you over and over and over again, but it's Bircher. Uh, Dang! Hey, ah. hey, you you got the name wrong. I'll tell you this. I was looking at the storylines of these stories, including A Shattered Hope, the last one, and until I opened up the Star Wars Timeline Gold, I couldn't have told you what that story was about at all. So, you know, a name is is not too bad. Well, see, uh, in all this time, I, I could have swore, I, I must have been saying Bridger in my head the whole yeah, well, time. Well, Bridger, I, I always think Nathan Bridger from Sequest, which is why it didn't pop to my head. Uh, um, yeah, with Rebels, I was all like, oh man, if they only would oh, yeah, silly me. So we've got uh, the Kel Bircher storyline, when it turns out that he's a rebel who is a spy, and we never get to see anything with him again, um, that seems to have ended the whole spy storyline without really resolving much of anything. Uh, and they introduced new characters that had us sort of scratching our heads like Prithy, and we're like, what? She can hear Obi-Wan? What? Kind of stuff, and just 
never really got any details with it. Like, how can she see him? And Leia can't, and all this kind of stuff. Um, a lot of head scratchers. And a lot of continuity things when it came to things like the Executor being built, and you know, it's two months after A New Hope, and what's going on with the Rebels? Have they evacuated or not? Oh, God, it was a headache. But then we got these stories. And they were just kind of the oddities. Five Days of Sith, I would say, is probably the height of this series. And it had little to nothing to do with the main Rebel characters. It was in Sananda and what it was like working under Vader for five days. And how it completely changes her perceptions on things and leaves her essentially mentally scarred and haunted as the story ends. I thought that was a very well-done story that didn't tend to really clash with anything in the way that it was told. Um, Rebel Girl really had me shaking my head. Oh, goody. The Rebels need a base at Erichar. How are they going to do it? We're going to recycle a big chunk of the plot from a, the courtship of Princess Leia. Leia's going to give her hand in marriage to this Prince Caspar, uh, you know, Caspar the Friendly Ghost, or the Friendly Erichar-ian. Um, so yeah, that, the Friendly Host. Yeah, yeah, the Friendly Ghost. Oh, there you go, Friendly Host. Um, so that they can have a home and a base on this planet. And... Of course, we knew that wasn't going to be the way that it played out. It all wound up going nuts. Gee, it's kind of odd they didn't mention anything like that back in Courtship of Princess Leia, but of course that was written, you know, decades earlier. So it's just a recycled story point that couldn't have been mentioned there, but you would figure continuity-wise, of course, somebody would have said something whenever she was going to marry Iceholder and all. Oh, um, could you just imagine Han coming down on her now that that was, you're just a Yeah, you're doing it again. <laughs> um... But the thing about Rebel Girl to me that, that bothered me most, uh, it is a recycled story in some respects. You knew how it was going to have to pan out. It was kind of meh in that regard. But what bothered me the most is something you mentioned with Bircher. Bircher for a while didn't get a first name, but at least he eventually got one. The villain of Rebel Girl is this one-eyed general on Erichar who never gets a name. And that, to me, is sloppy, idiotic storytelling. You don't tell a story in which the villain never gets a name. There needs to be some way that we can put him in perspective in our minds and label him somehow instead of, hey, he's the one-eyed a-hole. It doesn't work like that. You need to give him a name. Um, I wonder if perhaps he was named in the script and we were just never told his name because it was never said in the story. Very much like uh, there was that character back in uh, What Sin Loyalty, the rebel spy on the Death Star that it turns out was named after my first podcast, Chrono Radio, back in the day when Jeremy Barlow wrote the story. Um, in cases like that, when it's realized, oh, this character doesn't get named in the story, at some point, the writer needs to come out and say, oh, by the way, the character's name was such and such. Star Wars fans are minutia-driven. When it comes to something like a Wikipedia or a Star Wars Timeline Gold, we want to be able to name this character to reference him or her appropriately and be able to say, look them up at some point. And instead, they never give the character a name. So to me, it felt like the story was always missing a level of detail that it should have had. Then we've got A Shattered Hope. That's the one that I couldn't remember squat from until I looked it up. Oh, look, it's an old friend of Leia's we've never heard of before. And Leia's trying to save her in sort of a running battle with IG-88. Uh, cool visuals for the story, but we were never given a reason to care about that character. We'd never heard of her before. We're never going to hear from her again. 
So to me, it felt lackluster. I won't say it felt like a poor, poorly done story, but it felt lackluster in that sense. And it's all made even the more confusing for those who wind up picking these up in trade paperback form, because Five Days of Sith came before Rebel Girl, which came before A Shattered Hope in the series, when they collected them because of the number of issues involved in each, Rebel Girl got its own trade paperback, and then Five Days of Sith and A Shattered Hope got lumped together into the last trade paperback of the series. Uh, so if you're looking these up in trade paperback form and you're reading them in trade paperback form, technically, you're reading them out of order. You need to move Five Days of Sith to before Rebel Girl in your reading order in order for it all to theoretically make as much sense as this series ever did. So I think it ended continuity-wise better off than it started, but the damage was done in a lot of ways by that point, and the fact that Rebel Girl felt recycled, A Shattered Hope didn't feel like it really had much impact to it, and really only Five Days of Sith stands out as a particularly strong entry into the series. This was an experiment in Star Wars hype that absolutely had the Phantom Menace thing going for it. They hyped it up and hyped it up and hyped it up, and it didn't live up to the hype. It was a flawed product, and it will continue to be, I think, in Star Wars circles of longtime EU fans, looked at as a prime example of when good ideas go wrong. Yeah, and, and I hope it's an example to the canon group, you know, the story group canon going forward of ways not to approach it. I mean, that whole, you know, let's set it aside and tell a good story. It's like, well, let's not sacrifice. Let's tell a good story and keep a focus on continuity. That brings us to a series that we very recently discussed, a series that ended also this year, sort of a long-running mini-series, and that is The Star Wars. We had seen issues 1 through 4 back in 2013. In 2014, we got issues 5 through 8. But prior to those, right there in the middle of the series, we got number 0, that behind-the-scenes type look into the series. And then, of course, we got the multiple collected editions, the regular trade paperback, the hardback, and the deluxe edition of The Star Wars. Uh, I would have to say, thinking back to this, that this was both the best and the worst year for that series. The pacing got a lot better once we hit the middle of the series, but it was that last confrontation with Wookiees all of a sudden being Ewok-like in their primitivity, and yet somehow being able to fly the Y-Wing-type starfighters in this big Battle of Yavin-type confrontation was utterly ridiculous to me. Um, but it was a cool experiment, and if you want to hear our thoughts on it, of course, we covered it in three episodes recently, so certainly you've got a lot of chances to see our detailed thoughts on those. Mark, anything to add to that one beyond what we've already said so much? No, I mean, really, you know, we said it before, and I'll say it again, it, it's an interesting ride into the experiment, as you said. Uh, you know, seeing what that rough draft looked like and what it was and what it could have been and potentially to you as you're consuming it, the train wreck it may or may not have become. Uh, you know, there were some angles about it that really had me curious, and it is something that as it ends, I would like to see continued to a degree. Uh, you know, as I've said with uh, the Tales Infinities stories, uh, each one of those were their own little universes in and of themselves. And in that regard, you can almost see this as an alternate universe. And I would kind of get a kick out of seeing more for where it goes. It did provide that much entertainment. 
but don't go into it looking for a great story. Go into it looking at it as more a uh, look into history. That brings us into the two miniseries that both premiered and ended this year. And I guess you could say there was another stage in that they were also collected in a trade paperback form this year, uh, which are Rebel Heist and Darth Maul's Son of Dathomir. We've covered both of these previously on the show, so let's focus in here first on Rebel Heist. Uh, Mark, your thoughts on Rebel Heist looking back on it uh, as a production of 2014? Well, as we said at the beginning, I don't think Dark Horse was able to you know, write these stories after they knew about it. This was one they already knew about. I, I kind of think that it, had they known what was coming in advance, that this story wouldn't have been one we got. Um, you know, I, I wasn't that impressed with it overall. It was an interesting ride in a lot of ways. It felt like the star Wars, uh, not the star Wars, I'm sorry, but star Wars volume two. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, it was all right at best for me. Very meh. Uh, the story just kind of was there. It, it, it was so I don't know, Quentin Tarantino-esque that in a lot of ways it didn't really work for me. Uh, the covers kind of threw me off a little bit. I wasn't the biggest fan of the covers as well. Uh, so while I liked the computerized ones, the ones done by the artist himself, the, the writer, they just didn't turn me on. It kind of more turned me off. Uh, and again, as a, one of the last stories to tell in Legends, it wasn't one I was looking forward to. Yeah, we covered this recently. I will say that Rebel Heist was an interesting experiment in Star Wars storytelling to give us perspectives outside of our main characters, uh, see what regular Rebels might have thought about them uh, going on throughout the series. Uh, it was one that kind of flopped, I think, because of it being one of the last Legend stories. We expected more out of this series, and it just kind of had that buyer's market feel. It was all about getting one particular piece of technology that we really never wondered how they got in the first place. It might have made more sense and been more interesting to put this into story group canon, but alas, it wasn't. Definitely one that I would say we could certainly skip. Just like the series itself tended to skip important scenes like Chewie somehow killing a Rancor and such. Uh, definitely not a high point uh, of Dark Horse's Star Wars run. Even Chewbacca is like, man, I wish I could have seen that scene. I want to know how I killed it. He's like, I was pimp. That brings us to, though, Darth Maul's Son of Dathomir, another four-issue series, a trade paperback collected this year, and a unique entry into Dark Horse's Star Wars library in that it is a Legends publication, initially, because it is being published by Dark Horse Comics. But it is based on previously unproduced scripts for the Clone Wars and is said now to be considered part of the Clone Wars cartoon series in a way that no other spin-off Clone Wars materials ever was. As such, since Clone Wars is part of story group canon, also it is in both, unlike Rebels, which is only story group canon, that means that Son of Dathomir is unique amongst Dark Horse's comics in that it is straddling both continuities. It is Legends by virtue of being Dark Horse, it is also story group canon by virtue of being officially part of the Clone Wars a cartoon series, even though it was not a cartoon itself. Now, with this one, you know, because it was in two universe, I loved it 
as story group canon. You know, as a story group canon story, 100%, it was a great ride. Uh, it didn't conflict with anything. It was a very, very, uh, I don't know, mysterious in a lot of ways. There was things going on with Mother Talzin that I wanted to know more about. Uh, you know, w- there were some details with Darth Maul himself and, and his coming about that I didn't understand. Uh, there were some details for season six that now, after reading the comic, I was like, oh, that's what was going on. So, you know, I, I really enjoyed it like that. But when I look at it from a legend standpoint, not so much. I mean, one thing, you know, spoiler warning here, but Maul's resolution, his fate is still untold by story's end. So in a lot of ways, I felt like this was Talzin's tale. So that aspect, even in Legends, I enjoyed. I enjoyed Talzin's story, her closure, if you will. Uh, but for Darth Maul, I did not like it for Legends. I did not like it necessarily for Darth Maul from story group canon because I want his fate, but they could still give me that eventually. But Legends is not going to be able to give me that anytime soon. So, you know, for that, it really botched it. Plus, there was the aspect of, you know, Maul's now Talzin's son. And in Legends, I'm like, I don't really like that idea. I have, a, I still have a hard time not really believing that she's not lying on the legends aspect story group. canon, I can take it for face value, but there are other stories and other things that I have to consider in legends. So it's really hard to swallow it at face value when I'm looking at it in that regard, which makes it a very hard comic for me to really wrap my head around because it, it straddles those two lines. Uh, you know, it, and I get a lot of flack with this. The Clone Wars in itself kind of does the same thing. Uh, you know, Karen Travis wrote the novelization for the film. Uh, there are adaptations of almost every single episode. So there are book forms of the whole show. So, you know, it's like it straddles those same two lines. So so it's ineffective, you know, the same as the Clone Wars in general, except unlike those digests and stuff. They fell behind. This one actually was used. So it gives me that 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 breakaway. And and this is the one comic that because I'm able to look at it from two different perspectives. And I even went out and bought it twice. I, I've got the trade paperback for my story group canon collection and the singles with the rest of my comics. But because it's got those two angles, I, I keep going back to it. And I, it's actually becoming a, a, a most read comic of the year for me i think i've read the thing probably about 20 times and i like the art there's some really great panels in there uh grievous's character is really fun there are scenes where he's stabbing people that i just each panel is is glorious there while kenobi's not in the story very long there are some great shots of him mid-emotion uh that that harken back you know as we mentioned in the episodes we were discussing it back to season six you know, I really enjoyed it on so many levels, even though there were aspects of me that were conflicted with it. So it was a really weird trip for me to go through this one because of all the, the, the knowledge that I have with Legends and where Maul falls into it with the Darth Plagueis and all these great stories and stuff. And then the I'm free aspect of canon. So <laughs> I'm enjoying it for two totally different reasons. And yet I also have, you know, angles where I'm like, I didn't enjoy it as much for alternate reasons, but it, it wasn't enough to taint it for me. I mean, all the way around, I would still highly recommend this one. Yeah, it was an interesting tale. I love the fact that we at least got it, right? We got these unproduced season six Clone War stories. So we could see where Maul goes from there. We don't really get much of a real conclusion for him, but at least for 
seeing what comes next after the events of the stuff that we got with, you know, the lawless and shades of reason and all that kind of stuff. Um, the fact that it is in both continuities is frustrating because of what happened with Maul getting essentially a new origin story. But at the same time, like you said, that's what the Clone Wars was. Uh, you made the joke, I can't remember if it was on this show or on Rebels Roundtable, but you made the joke of it came in like a wrecking ball and did the little Miley Cyrus parody <laughs> type thing. Um, that's basically what Clone Wars did. There was this great planned out story set up by either months or weeks, all interweaving thing that was done from 2002 up through about 2007 going into 2008. Clone Wars was the most intricately planned and interwoven era of Star Wars publishing ever. And then Lucas made the Clone Wars. And it came in like a wrecking ball and just shattered continuity of the time. There still is no definitive answer of how any of this stuff is meant to fit together. What's in, what's out. Uh, that's it. That's why my Star Wars Timeline Gold, when it comes to the Clone Wars supplement, at this point still has two different timelines of the Clone Wars in their own separate Clone Wars supplement document. There is no way to fit them together officially. Someday I might try to come up with a way that they sort of fit together uh, as sort of speculation, but that's all it would be, speculation. There is no official answer, and that is asinine at this point. We were promised there would be a way to show how it all fits together once the series was over. The series ended, by then Disney was in charge, by then other projects were going, Story Group Canon was going, an answer is not forthcoming. And that is going to be frustrating to continuity fans for Legends probably forever, because that's just the kind of mess the series created. Given that, though, can't really fault Son of Dathomir for having another continuity slamming issue, because that's what the series did, you know, going back to, hey, where does Soka come from? Hey, how did Anakin get knighted so early? And Greedo, yes, we said Greedo, and all of that. Uh, barring the effect that it had on that element of Legends, it's a fun story, uh, it's cool to see where it went, and it's very cool to see a unique crossroads, in a sense, with Dark Horse. Dark Horse now cannot say that all of their stuff is Legends continuity, or at least that it's only Legends continuity, because they have this one comic series, aside from film adaptations and the like, that actually winds up being part of story group canon. Marvel does not get the distinction of saying they produce the first story group canon Star Wars comic anymore. Dark Horse got the chance to do that uh, through Jeremy Barlow and Son of Dathomir. That brings us into some of the other collected works out there before we get to kind of the oddity when it came to new Star Wars stories. Uh, in the Omnibus series, we got four this year, mostly rounding out some things. We got Dark Times Omnibus Volume 1 and 2 that included the entire series from Path to Nowhere all the way up to A Spark Remains, which had just recently finished up in 2013, actually got its trade paperback this year, and we had the Omnibus KOTOR, Knights of the Old Republic Volume 3, wrapping up that series, and Omnibus Adventures, which included the Star Wars Adventures Digest comics. We're going to take a look at these in the near future here on the show, but for those who are like, Adventures? What the heck is he talking about? That's Star Wars Adventures, Han Solo and the Hollow Moon of Coria, Princess Leia and the Royal Ransom, Luke Skywalker and the Treasure of the Dragon Snakes, The Will of Darth Vader, Boba Fett and the Ship of Fear, and Chewbacca and the Slavers of the Shadowlands. So, four new omnibus editions this year. Honestly, I could care less whether they collected 
Dark Times, aside from just saying it's nice that people can have that in their libraries, kind of frustrating and annoying that one of the first things that Marvel's going to reprint as Legends from Dark Horse is freaking Dark Times that, frankly, I think is one of the worst examples of storytelling if you're running people to care about the characters within Dark Horse's tenure. Um, not a series I'm even remotely fond of. I think it's good that Adventures was finally collected, but they're all goofy little throwaway stories. I can't imagine anyone really hunting these down to find them at this point, unless they're trying to complete a collection. Uh, but it is nice to see KOTOR, that had gotten two omnibus editions already, finally get its third, so people who are interested in that series can read the series in that omnibus form. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of the omnibuses, but I had a hard time with this because I, I've already got them in trades or singles, so it's like, do I do I want to go and get omnibuses? If the price dropped dramatically with them all in the very last month, maybe that'd be something I go out and recollect and maybe then throw my other ones onto eBay or something. I mean, I like the look of them. I like being able to put them out with my hardcovers and that kind of stuff. I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things like at this point, you know, once you've already collected so many singles, it's like, do you even bother replacing them anymore? I mean, at one point I was going and replacing most of my singles as trades, but I don't know. I go back and forth with that. I mean, I did go out and I bought two of the, you know, Darth Small Son of Dathomers, but that was a special case. So I don't know. There is a special place for omnibuses in my heart, though. I hope Marvel does a similar format in size and thickness. I mean, it doesn't have to have the same look exactly, but I like the dimensions of. So if they put something out that was similar to that, I think that would be a nice thing for fans. Um, call it fan service if you want. I just call it cool. I guess I should point out here that the KOTOR Volume 3, for what it's worth, goes from issue 38 through 50, Faithful Execution up through Demon Part 4. But it does include, for those who are wondering, uh, Knights of the Old Republic War 1 through 5, for what it's worth. I'm not as big a fan of that series because of, of it feeling like an unnecessary add-on. We've talked about this before here on the show and all. But uh, it does include... War, for those who are trying to pick up that and wanted to make sure that it did include the entirety of the series. War is included. Uh, and I, like you, don't tend to lean toward the omnibus editions most of the time. For me, I'll pick up an omnibus if there's something in it I don't have in printed form. Like, I picked up, uh, shoot, I think it was called Menace Revealed or something like that a while back, that had the different stories from Dark Horse Extra reprinted in it that I didn't otherwise have. I went through and picked up Wild Space Volumes 1 and 2 because there were things in there that I didn't have either in printed form, like the Pod Racing Tales, or stuff that I'd never seen in printed form at all, uh, let alone things that just weren't available in printed form, like, say, one of the early uh, Marvel stories that hadn't been reprinted elsewhere, for instance. Um, the other omnibus editions that I've picked up have only been the Marvel stuff. Because I'm one of the cool recolored versions, and I've got the original Marvel series as individual comics. Took up a big part of From the Star Wars Library, that video series I was doing over on YouTube. Uh, which, by the way, I've added some more for From the Star Wars Home Video Library recently, so be sure to check those out and all. Uh, lots of plugs this time popping into my head, uh, which is not the norm recently for us. But, to me, an omnibus is so that I don't damage my original books. So for the Marvel series, it made perfect sense. I don't want to damage those original Marvel issues, so I'm going to pick them up in omnibus form so it's much easier to read through all of them at a stretch without running the risk of messing up something that's, you know, decades old. 
but I've never been one to really like to pick up the trade paperbacks. In fact, I've gone through in the last few years and every Star Wars trade paperback that I've owned, if at all humanly possible, I've taken it, sold it, and replaced it with the individual single issues because that's the type of collector I am. Knowing that some things aren't released in trade paperback form, I want them as individuals. And to me, a trade paperback or an omnibus is needing to be something separate. But a story that's only in one of those is almost like a blight on my collection that bothers me. I don't like having Menace revealed. I don't like having to have wild space for certain things to be in my possession in print, like Death Mask. But that's just sort of the way that it is for me right now. Uh, but it's very cool to have these available in a, ex I would say, an extremely cost-effective form. And it's something I really hope that Marvel decides to continue. Paperback manageable-sized, manageable-priced omnibus editions of previously existing stories. Don't just give us these overpriced hardback collector's editions, Marvel. Give us stuff like what you did with the uh, the old essential Marvel Comics uh, omnibus edition type things where there were these giant, in some cases black and white, but giant reprints of tons and tons of issues of Spider-Man or X-Men or whatever. Give us something that's a cross between what you're doing with the hardbacks that's kind of frustrating, I think, price-wise, just for something that's a reprint, and what you did with those essential books. Give us something like a Dark Horse Omnibus, and I don't think you can go wrong. That brings us out of the Omnibus editions, though, into just other trade paperbacks. I've mentioned the different trade paperbacks of the series we've talked about being published this year, but there were also some that were trade paperbacks from previous series that did wind up getting published this year. We had the Last of the Dark Times trade paperbacks, A Spark Remains, which is included in Dark Times Omnibus number two. We also saw, what I think is kind of an oddity here, Legacy Volume 1, right, the Ostrander and Dursima series, Book 3. They did kind of like with KOTOR and basically put out omnibus versions of the original Legacy series, it said they weren't published under the Omnibus line. They were simply Legacy Book 1, Book 2, Book 3, and we finally saw Book 3 this year. Another great series to pick up, another more cost-effective way to pick it up uh, if you're looking for it now as opposed to trying to hunt down individual issues. But I do find it odd that what is essentially an Omnibus was not marketed as such in that case. Yeah, I mean, it, it is an Omnibus, right? I mean, the only thing that's... It doesn't say Omnibus on it, but otherwise it's exactly like the Omnibus is sitting on our shelves, correct? That's right. Well, sort of. It is kind of like KOTOR Volume 3 in that it finishes off the series, going from 37 up through the end, and then it does wind up then including the War series. And in this case, I thought it was sort of necessary to finish it off. The one thing that does separate it is that this is a uh, essentially deluxe hardcover version. They had been collected before in paperback form. This is a hardcover version akin to kind of like what we got with uh, Darth Vader and the, well, everything from those different series, except in this case, it's an omnibus in terms of how much is actually included in it. It's not just one miniseries or one story arc. So, kind of. It's an omnibus without being an omnibus because it's hardback instead of paperback, I guess is the way to look at it. Ah, uh, okay. And folks, lastly, we'd be remiss if not talking about one other new source of Star Wars comics. We had the Clone Wars magazine, 
produced by Titan, which is being published in the UK, then published in the US, and it's published more often in the UK. When it gets to the US, generally there are two comics in it that would be from the UK, but which would then essentially take up two UK magazines worth of comics, because they, they tend to have one in each issue. The American one is produced less often, would have two. Well, the Clone Wars magazine finally ended since the Clone Wars as a series was over with on television. In its place is the new, somewhat hard to find, somewhat frustrating to get in the mail, just fair warning, Star Wars magazine. Not Star Wars Insider, just Star Wars magazine. Again, produced in the UK, Star Wars volume, whatever, because there's tend to be Star Wars magazines all the time, just with different volume numbers for different years. In this case, it is Star Wars Magazine as the title in the U.S., and we have seen the first three issues. It's very much a little kid's magazine, very much like the Clone Wars magazine was, but it does include original stories. They feel like stories that should be taking place in the Legends continuity, as far as I know they are, but there's no Legends label on it anywhere, and in theory they're going through the story group, so there's a level of confusion as to where these might fit. For now, the assumption is... They are still legends, just like the ones in Clone Wars magazine. Though what makes this unusual is that, unlike Clone Wars magazine, there are two eras of stories being told in Star Wars magazine. Uh, we have some stories that are being told in the Clone Wars era, which in that sense carry on from all the many, many throwaway, mostly goofy little stories of Clone Wars we got in Clone Wars magazine. However, there are also some classic trilogy-era tales still goofy, still kiddie, still throwaway, uh, that do take place with characters like Han and Chewie, or Luke and the droids and Obi-Wan on Tatooine at one point in their journey to Mos Eisley and so forth. Uh, probably most notable is the fact that there is an ongoing serialized story, basically of Han and Chewie winding up with troubles on the Falcon, landing in an old Separatist base, using an old Separatist droid brain to help get the Falcon back up and running, and the problems that have ensued since then. They're not great tales. Like I said, they're mostly goofy, kiddie, throwaway stories. There's some question as to where they fit. But it is cool to see that one of the other oddball sources of Star Wars comics is still ongoing, albeit with a new name to the publication. Uh, Star Wars Magazine is out there. I've found that the easiest way to keep track of this is use uh, Eddie Vanderheiden's website uh, StarWarsTimeline.com or his upcoming Star Wars Books and Comics Facebook page. And when he says that issue is out in the U.S., he's usually exactly right on the mark. That's when to call up your local bookstore and say, hey, do you have this in stock? Please hold it for me so I can pick it up. Because I have had nothing but trouble with publication subscriptions through Titan for these kids' magazines. Insider? Okay. But these show up in the mail with no plastic baggie over them, usually torn all to hell. And half the time, I didn't even receive the issues I was supposed to receive. And when I would call them with customer service questions, they didn't even know which issues were out, which series existed. It's absolute chaos, it seems, behind the scenes for these. So if you're going to pick them up, use the standard bookstore or maybe use something like Things from Another World, although they get them a little bit later. Um, but they are out there with the original Star Wars tales. I don't have any of these. I'm not subscribed to them. I... I've seen, I think, number one on a magazine shelf. I didn't get it. And I think it's because it's in that quasi spot. I mean, you know, at this point, it's like, you know, some clarity would be nice when 
the stories, like you said, they, they feel like they should be in Legends. Uh, you know, because I would be very disappointed to find out down the road that these were Legends after they'd already said, from this point forward, everything Legends is going to have a Legends label on it. And then them putting out stuff that doesn't. Uh, because, you know, I mean, it, it's going to happen. I mean, look at the Mural Handbook. Where was the Le- Legends banner on that? Nowhere to be found. But that was a Legends story. Even though Dan Wallace, while writing it, didn't know which canon it was going to fall into or even, you know, any of that equation. But that came out. It was Legends. It had no label on it. But that came out after the fact that they said everything coming out is going to be a Legend label. It's going to have it on there. Well, yeah, on the paperbacks and stuff, but not everything across the board. There's no clarity on that everything across the board. Now, granted, that could be because it was probably a statement more aimed at Delray stuff, but why not give us that full clarity about the rest of your products? I mean, you know, they talk about story group canon and everything's going to be one canon moving forward. Well, what about video games? Because video games have always had a history of throwing game mechanics in there and canon continuity type stuff when it comes to force displays out the window so you know how's that gonna look uh the old thing i used to always refer to as games needing to be pliable to be playable uh that is actually something we're gonna be talking about coming up in our next episode when we start talking about games videos uh, and other big events for star wars in 2014 and that topic of where's the line between story group canon or disney canon versus Legends is going to come up again because it's within games that we find things like the Old Republic started under Legends and continuing now with some measure of uh, head shaking depending on who it is that you're talking to about that. Plus Fantasy Flight Games' huge line of Star Wars products that has now actually started to include even more new games being announced or released in 2014 heading into 2015 is a really big year for them. So. We'll be taking a look at that very soon. Just understand that if if there's a measure of clarity out there between continuities in this episode and the last, for the most part, that starts to go out the window as we move into our next episode here. Uh, I would say overall for comics, and we said this back when we looked at our Dark Horse retrospective, this was not a banner year for Star Wars comics from Dark Horse. It was a relatively blasé year. It did not end on a strong note, and while it did have, I think... Some strong tales from time to time, uh, Five Days of Sith being a strong tale, Force War being a relatively strong tale, uh, Son of Dathomir being a strong tale, and the fact that they did finish up some strong product lines like the Omnibus Editions. Overall, I don't think there's many Star Wars fans out there who would look at Dark Horse's comics for 2014 and say that this was Dark Horse ending with a bang, as opposed to mostly a whimper. Yeah. And and that, I think, is the saddest thing all the way around for EU and Legends going down. I mean, it's going down slowly. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I wish we had some better stories. I do, I do find some solace in my Star Wars Legacy Volume 2. I loved the fact that the cover on that was the last stand of Anya Solo. It being the last comic to come out uh, at that point of Legends. So it was kind of cool to have that being its case and, and doing what it did. So that that felt nice. Uh, but overall, yeah, it was lackluster. And that's kind of a shame.
Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. And remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any comments, Star Wars, Legends, E you anything like that or you just want to comment about a past episode fire off you can always email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com now lastly before we go we wanted to mention to you our audible trial if you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Expanded Universe or any other Star Wars genre without being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months with no questions asked. So, in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Sing, thanks for listening, and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that we'll ever get clarity on those Star Wars tales for which there isn't clarity right now. Or the odds that John Ostrander and Jen Jerisma come back to Marvel, go to Marvel, jump to Marvel, swing to Marvel, be Marvel. Excelsior! Mediocrity. They were completely hosed with mediocre. God, how do I say this, man? Mediocre. Well, yeah, if it's media, if you're using it as an adjective, mediocre. If you're using it as a noun, okay. mediocre. I can't say. I can say it when I stop and ask you the question. All right. I, I mean, they were completely hosed into mediocre stories. I still said it wrong, didn't I? Mediocre. Yep. Mediocre. Mediocre. Yoker. Like yoker. What the like fuck? That shit you eat you. Yoker. Mediocre. All right. Of Dawn of the Jedi. Ah, and there goes my email going off. So let me close that. You got mail. You got Aww. junk again. You know, every time I turn on my email in the morning, when I first get on the computer, I have at least 150 emails going into my junk folder and 150 oh. that are junk going into my inbox every day now. It's ridiculous. Somebody has put my email address onto something, or I have 
unintentionally, and now I get crap all the time. Well, you know, and that's weird because my Gmail account, my Logical Rogue 2 at Gmail, mm-hmm. is the same way. My Hotmail, I, I barely get like, a, oh, do you know this Twitter follower? But the other one, it's just like everybody and their dog wants to sell me something, give me Viagra, or take me to bed. Exactly. Exactly. Or both. With the Viagra in bed part. <laughs> all right, let me say that again, then. For Darth Red. So we knew why the heck he... From from the ruins of on yeah, and we go down there and there's no no leaders no nothing so we get to be down there selling all this stuff it's like well if if you had all this how come we're supposed to know oh we, you, it was all set at the meeting well you knew I wasn't at that meeting you knew my wife wasn't think, at that meeting I think the phrase you're looking for is oh for fuck's sake roll some fucking quarters yes and just leave it at that <laughs> you know okay um almost done two more categories. Get to my screen again, motherfucker. Too many things open and up. There goes Microsoft Money trying to open, motherfucker. I didn't want to. I just tapped the wrong damn thing on the taskbar. Okay, here we go. <laughs> I just downloaded five pages of porn. <laughs> You'd be like, son of a bitch, ride that Jedi what? <laughs> um, all right. And oh, folks, moves like Java. Sorry. Ugh. <laughs> and folks, like. Like, see, and now I'm gonna say like, like Java. What the f- am I even talking? <laughs> <clears throat>